Hi, I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Heather Michelle Lawler. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. Do it. Do it. <laughs> I have noticed that just sort of singing along with the song has become my sort of only move as we start. <laughs> what, yeah, that you just kind of like boogie, like yeah, it's like it's, your, it's like a, a finger dance. <laughs> yeah, there's a little dancing and a little shimmying, and then just like um, scuba doo bop, shoo bop, bop, bedi, scuba dee bop, delightful scat, scatting. Yeah, that's it. That's kind of all I do. <laughs> all right, cool. Uh, so hi, welcome to the show. Yeah, um, we're, we're back in like civilization. <laughs> and back for round 10. Oh my gosh, we're in episode 10. Ding, ding, we have hit the double digits. What? <laughs> Which is why I am celebrating with, um... A Kentucky Mule. A Kentucky Mule. Cheers. Ta-da. Cheers, everyone. We're having a delicious Kentucky Mule. Mmm. And if you don't know what that is... It is whiskey with ginger beer and fresh lime, and I highly encourage you to make one. Right now, pause, or take us with you. Go to the kitchen, make yourself a nice little cocktail. It'll be yummy. Mm -hmm. And the more of it you drink, the funnier we get. We, we get real funny. <laughs> um, so, uh, welcome, welcome back to the thing. Welcome back to the show. I hope you've had a lovely week. Um, we've missed you. We've I'm sorry you. if you've missed us. Didn't mean to leave you hanging like that. Yeah, we're we're uh, we're doing a lot. Like this week, we were traveling in Minnesota, and now we're back in Iowa. And then in four days, we are driving back home to New York City. Back to the Big Apple. Back home. So yeah, that'll be nice. Yeah. So <laughs> I haven't been home for almost a year. So that'll be really great. I've kind of forgotten what New York looks like. <laughs> what does New York? Well, we have to quarantine for fourteen days when we get back. So we're probably going to record like 50 episodes, you know, and just backlog them. <laughs> going to get some backlogs. There's a decent chance you guys will be getting some Thursday or Friday episodes in addition to the regular Tuesday episodes. Yeah, we're thinking um, of throwing in some some uh, like longer stories so we can do two-parters. Two um, yeah, so stay tuned for some uh, bonus content headed your way um, because we're going to have a lot of free time in our one-bedroom apartment, <laughs> which we can't leave for 14 days. So. <laughs> So uh, get ready. So you'll either be getting lots of extra episodes or none because we've murdered each other. <laughs> that got dark. Okay. Uh, that got quiet. Oh, my God. I thought that was going to get a chuckle. Uh, I'm going to, um, I'm going to, you know, like keep Kitty close by. <laughs> She's very protective. She, yeah, she will destroy you. You know that. <laughs> uh, so uh, we've got some things to do before we start uh, start business as usual. First among those things is we owe a thank you song to our new producer level donors. And they just happen to be my mom and dad, Brian and Jan Lawler. <laughs> so uh, we're gonna uh, we're gonna sing a little song here. Yeah, um, they uh, became uh, patrons uh, while we were up in Minnesota, and now we get to. Uh, make up a song for them but i'm going to start the i'm going to start the video because again if you become a patron you can watch us record these because we do not in any way a lot of people have been reaching out they're like oh you don't like talk about like 
structure or who's gonna sing what and like anything and I'm like no we, it's an improv song we we, we love uh, whose lines it anyway and we honor the tradition of not knowing what's coming and yeah so I'm gonna start the video there we go if you've been listening regularly you'll you'll know that I don't even really take the time to tune the guitar before we start it's tuned-ish it's fine <laughs> So uh, we're going to sing a song for Brian and Jan Lawler. Yeah. You want to take verse one this time? Oh my gosh. Or, or should I keep it? Uh, um, I'll take verse one. Let's find out what happens. production company which hosts this podcast then head to patreon.com slash 5050 arts production we also have a new website Woo! you want to talk about that he's sipping his his cocktail getting a drink um so uh we have a new website uh we still have the 5050 arts production website um, that is up at 5050artsproduction.com but if you want to get information specific to this podcast We've got uh, campfireclassicspodcast.com. Yay! Uh, you, can, you can head on over there and uh, get up-to-date info uh, about what we're doing here with the podcast, um, pictures of us doing dumb things for the podcast. <laughs> uh, there will be um, behind-the-scenes videos, some yeah. special content. Uh, it's another location where you can hear all of the episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, It'll also direct you to uh, all of our uh, social media places because we also created a Twitter this week and a Instagram. Twitter, I still don't understand. Twitter, I'm learning about Twitter. Like we got shared by some people. That's the first time that has ever happened to me. So uh, I think I've, I'm breaking the Twitter, the Twitter, uh, the block because I think it's meant for businesses. <laughs> I think it's meant to promote things, and um, me as a person don't. Like, what am I going to promote about myself? Like, I, I guess I'm just not that person. So, but I can promote, promote the hell out of this podcast that I love. You and could promote your cool new hair color. I do. What color is it now? It's slowly it's, fading. It's sort of pinky purpley. Pinky purpley. Um, but yeah, so if you want to be, uh, follow us on Twitter, it's Campfire Classy One. So just take the S off classics and put and a number the, one and instead. And the second C. And the second C. 
<laughs> Campfire Classy One. That, that's Twitter at Campfire Classy, C L A S S I, one, the digit. The digit. That's what they assigned us. So, um, yeah, that's what it is. And we are classy as hell. Speaking of that, let's read a classy as hell story. Classy. Nice, nice segue. As hell. I like it. Um, and this is our 10th episode. This is our 10th episode. So I thought. I think um, we said that. What? I said this is our 10th episode. I think we've said that. Hot. 10 is my lucky number. Did you know that? I'm sure you've mentioned it on occasion. Yeah. So 10 is my lucky number, and so I'm bringing it back to a classic. We're doing some Agatha Christie. Woot woot. Yay, it's my favorite. All right. Okay, so the last time we did Agatha Christie. In Agatha We Trust. In Agatha We Trust, which was our first episode, so I thought. When we get a thousand Patreon patrons, 1,000 Patreon patrons. Okay. Um, I will get in Agatha we trust tattooed on my body somewhere. Holy shit! He's terrified of needles too. I'm so. I'm I'm putting that out in the universe right now. When we get one thousand Patreon patrons, <laughs> you guys, I'm I'm looking at you right now. Do it, do I it. Will, I will put in Agatha we trust somewhere on your in body. ink on my body permanently. Not yes. not just the marker. Yes. For for uh, when we when we start donating a dollar, like when we hit when we hit twenty, I'll sharpie it on my chest. Ooh, and then then there'll be pictures of Ken's (laughs) chest. So Agatha approves. But so we did her. We read her the first episode, but we uh, didn't have. We were doing fun facts then. So So we're gonna do some fun facts about Miss Dame Agatha Mary Clarissa Christie. Jesus Christ! Yes, that is her full name. Um, she has a dame and has many names, but we're going to just call her Agatha Christie. Uh, she was born September 15th, 1890, so it's almost her birthday. What's up? Hey, Virgos in the house. <laughs> um, she is an English writer known for her 66 detective novels and 14 short story collections, particularly those revolving around the fictional detectives Hercule Poirot and Miss Marple. She, you know, it's a shame she couldn't get up off her ass and like actually write something. Because I feel like if she if she just gotten a couple more stories out there, you know, she really she'd be made famous. It'd be, yeah. Um, she also wrote the world's longest running play, The Mousetrap. The Mousetrap. Um, which was performed in the West End from 1952 until 2020 because it closed only because of the fucking pandemic. Oh, holy shit! So it didn't really close. It's coming back. It so, just got it got shut down. It just got shut down. So like, it's still running technically, but yeah. So, um, she also wrote six romance novels under a pseudonym, Mary Westmacott. She didn't want to like taint her like naughty detective style, so she had a pseudonym so for her herself, romance novels. Uh, a pseudonym that sounds a lot like a naughty word. Of Mary West. Westmacott. <laughs> Westmacott. In 1971, she was appointed to Dame Commander in the Order of the British Empire. Um, and she is in the Guinness Book of World Records um, as the best-selling fiction writer of all time. So, you know, God, I wish she just tried harder. Um, so I have three very fun facts about her. Because okay. there are a lot. So we're, we're going to read a lot of Christy because she's the muse of the whole podcast and she's fabulous um but i wanted to drop three so she tried her best to take up smoking (laughs) 
smoking was really cool at the time. So she really tried. After the end of World War I, Christie was quoted as saying she was disappointed that she couldn't seem to adopt the habit even though she's been trying. <laughs> I'll bet she would vape if she were alive oh, today. Ah, Christie's a vapor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. She would, probably. She'd at least try it. She'd try it. She'd at least try it. Um, Hercule Poirot got a New York Times obituary when he died. So, like Arthur Conan Doyle before her, Christie eventually wanted to, needed to kill off her main guy because, you know, he'd been around for long enough. So, um, in the 1975 novel Curtain, um, their reaction to this demise was so fierce that the New York Times published a front page obituary for the character on August 6th of 1975 Christie then passed away the following year okay so he got a front page obituary and finally she loved surfing what I know (laughs) this woman was the coolest woman of all time the image of Christie as a matronly author of mystery is one most easily recognized of course but along with her uh, husband they went traveling in 1922 this is right when she's starting to really write Mm -hmm. and become known they uh, traveled through South Africa and were uh, they went they wound up in Honolulu and all this stuff. Each stop, the couple got progressively more capable at riding surfboards. Some historians believe that she may have been the first British surfer to learn how to ride standing up. <laughs> so take that, um, Calabunga dude. Uh, Agatha Christie is one of the first British surfers. That's all I have to say about that. With that, I'm going to give you a story. That's Um, fantastic. Isn't that freaking fantastic? I'm so happy. I'm just like, what? (laughs) Uh, Where are you? Where are you? All right. This is The Mystery of Hunter's Lodge by Agatha Christie. All righty. Okay. Okay. We're going to start the fire. The Mystery of Hunter's Lodge. Oh, is this By Agatha Christie. Who's reading this story? I haven't decided yet. We are in England, I'm going to assume. Oh, yeah. Just so so you know. It would probably be The Mystery of Hunter's Lodge by Agatha Christie. Just so you know, I was really nice because I found a short story that will come up and you are not allowed to sign it to me because I've already claimed it. It is set in Germany, and all the characters are German, (laughs) and I didn't do this to you. But one day, it's going to happen. All right. In the meantime... (laughs) We're in England. After all, murmured Poirot, it is possible that I shall not die this time. Oh, good. That's a (laughs) hell of an opening line. That is a hell of an opening line. Mm After all, it is possible that I shall not die this time. What happened last time? I don't know. <laughs> Apparently he died last time. Oh, shit. One more time, because third time's a charm. <laughs> After all, it is possible that I shall not die this time. Coming from a convalescent influenza patient, I hailed the remark as showing a beneficial optimism. <laughs> I myself had been the first sufferer from the disease. Poirot, in his turn, had gone down. 
He was now sitting up in bed, propped up with pillows, his head muffled in a woolen shawl, <laughs> and was slowly sipping a particularly noxious tisane, which I had prepared according to his directions. His eye rested with pleasure upon a neatly graduated row of medicine bottles which adorned the mantelpiece. Did you pick this story because it takes place during a flu outbreak? I, they're not, actually. <laughs> I was like, wait, is this during the Spanish flu? <laughs> it's, I mean, it wouldn't be not the right time because this was written, I think, in 1923. I think this is 1923. Yep. So... Yeah. Yeah. Hey, too close to home, y'all, but, you know, enjoy. He doesn't die this time, so it's good. It is possible that he shall not die this time. Well, I know for a fact that he does not die until 1975. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, my little friend continued. Once more shall I be myself again, the great Hercule Poirot, the terror of evildoers. Figure to yourself, mon ami, that I have a little paragraph to myself in society gossip. But yes, (laughs) here it is. Go eat criminals all out. Hercule Poirot, and believe me, girls, is some Hercules, our own Society detective can't get a grip on you. Cause why? Cause he's got la grip himself. <laughs> so- I laughed. <laughs> Good for you, Poirot. You are becoming quite a public character. And fortunately, you haven't missed anything of particular interest during this time. Yeah, that everyone is, else is sick too. That is true. The few cases I have had to decline did not fill me with any regret. Our <laughs> landlady stuck her head in the door. There's a gentleman downstairs says he must see Monsieur Poirot or you, Captain. Seeing as he was in a great to-do and with all that quite the gentleman, I brought up his card. Oh, God. Yeah, he was fancy. He's like, no, give him this. Give it to him now. Hoity toy to toy. She handed me a bit of pasteboard. Mr. Roger Havering, I read. Pasteboard? Is that like cardboard? I don't know. Uh, Pasteboard? It just sounds like it's like wet and like (laughs) like little Timmy in kindergarten would eat it. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Pasteboard? I assume it's cardboard, but, like, I've never heard the the term, so let's look it up. Um, Pasteboard, a type of thin board made by pasting together sheets of paper. So it's, like, um, crafty cardboard. Yeah. It's homemade cardboard. It's the two-ply toilet paper version (laughs) of a business card. It's the get-your-hiney-clean version of uh, of a business card. My honey's clean. My my honey's clean. I'm not going to advertise unless you want us to. <laughs> but I like your story. Poirot motioned with his head towards the bookcase, and I obediently pulled forth who's who. Poirot took it from me and scanned the pages rapidly. Second son of fifth Baron Windsor, married 1913, Zoe, fourth daughter of William Crabbe. Hmm, I said... I rather fancy that's the girl who used to act at the frivolity. Only she called herself Zoe Camsbrook. I remember she married some young man about town just before the war. 
Would it interest you, Hastings, to go down and hear what our visitor's particular tr little trouble is? Make him all my excuses. The frivolity. <laughs> Does she work like what? She works at the silly theater. Like I think that's probably the like the the burlesque theater. The, the, the like, like the comedy. The comedy. The, the vaudeville. Yeah. The, um, except vaudeville's American. The uh, English like the, the beer music, hall. Like the, the music hall. hall. Okay. The frivolity of it. Roger Havering was a man of about 40, well set up and of smart appearance. His face, however, was haggard, and he was evidently laboring under great agitation. Captain Hastings, you are Monsieur Poirot's partner, I understand. Uh, it is imperative that he should come to me to Derbyshire today. I'm afraid that's impossible, I rep replied. Poirot is ill in bed. Influenza. His face fell. Dear me, that is a great blow to me. The matter on which you want to consult him is serious? My God, yes. My uncle, the best friend I have in the world, was foully murdered last night. Oh, well, damn. Here in London? No, in Derbyshire. I was in town and received a telegram from my wife this morning. Immediately upon its receipt, I determined to come round and beg Monsieur Poirot to undertake the case. If you will excuse me a minute, I said, struck by a sudden idea. I rushed upstairs and in a few brief words acquainted Poirot with the situation. He took any further words out of my mouth. I see, I see. Uh, you want to go yourself, is it not so? Well, why not? You should know my methods by now. All I ask is that you should report to me fully every day and follow implicitly any instructions I may wire you. To this, I agreed willingly. Oh my God, he's sending him out by himself. Oh my gosh, this is Hercule hilarious. Hercule Poirot. has to go out and be Poirot. Hercule Poirot <laughs> franchises out his yeah. detective agency. You have studied, you understand. Now go out and do exactly what I do, which is pure genius. Yeah. An hour later, I was sitting opposite Mr. Havering in a first-class carriage on the Midland Railway, speeding rapidly away from London. To begin with, Captain Hastings, you must understand that Hunter's Lodge, where we are going and where the tragedy took place, is only a small shooting box in the heart of the Derbyshire Moors. Our real home is near Newmarket. And <gasps> That's where I used to live! <laughs> oh my god, I love that we sang my parents' song on this one near Newmarket. Newmarket, we lived in Exning, which was a tiny little town right outside of Newmarket. It's where I used to ride horses. Aw, oh, thanks again. Thank you. I love my parents. And also, Newmarket's beautiful. So if you're listening in England, thank you. Our real home, if you're listening in England, sorry for the accents. <laughs> which I'm barely even attempting. <laughs> yeah, we've already offended most people, and you know, including our, our voice teachers. Our real home is near Newmarket, and we usually rent a flat in town for the season. Hunter's Lodge is looked after by a housekeeper who is quite capable of doing all we need when we run down for an occasional weekend. Of course, during the shooting season, we take down some of our own servants from Newmarket. 
My uncle, Mr. Harrington Pace, as you may know, my mother was Miss Pace of New York, has for the last three years made his home with us. Well, at least his mom's from New York, so that justifies so, okay. my bad it, accent. It, the, like, like North Atlantic, mid, like, yeah. you know, like, uh, muddled. Yeah. Like, very upper class, but who knows where from. He never got on well with... Wait, what happened? Ah, yes, my <laughs> uncle. Right, we're talking talking about my uncle. Yes, uh, uncle. He never got on well with my father or my elder brother, and I suspect that my being somewhat of a prodigal son myself rather increased than diminished his affection towards me. Of course, I am a poor man, and my uncle was a rich one. In other words, he paid the piper. Wait, but, did he say he's a poor man, and then he just talked about taking his servants down from Newmark? <laughs> family servants. Okay. So he inherited the family servants. Or, well, they would go down with, like, with his, his parents. Okay. Okay. You know, poor in England at this time was a different thing was, than was what a different poor thing, really yeah. is. Okay. Um, <laughs> and poor for the upper class, maybe. Yeah. Uh, and he's the second son. So he didn't inherit everything. Of yeah. the Baron of Windsor. Yeah. Oh, um, yes. Sounds like he's incredibly poor. Yeah, he's really having a rough time. <laughs> rough time? Please go on, sir. Tell me more. Tell me more. Of course I am a poor man, and my uncle was a rich one. In other words, he paid the piper. But though exacting in many ways, he was not really hard to get on with. And we all three lived very harmoniously together. Two days ago, my uncle, rather wearied with some recent gaieties of ours in town, suggested that we should run down to Derbyshire for a day or two. My wife telegraphed to Mrs. Middleton, the housekeeper, and we went down that same afternoon. Yesterday evening, I was forced to return to town, but my wife and my uncle remained on. This morning, I received this telegram. He handed it over to me. Come at once. Uncle Harrington murdered last night. Bring good detective if you can, but do come, Zoe. Bring good detective if you can. She gets to the point. Well, I know it's a telegram, so you yep. pay literally by the letter, yep. but bring good detective if you can. <laughs> Not one of those crappy ones. Yeah, if you could avoid the, the shit detectives. Yep. Yeah, that'd be great. Then, as yet, you know no details... No. I suppose it will be in the evening papers. Uh, without doubt, the police are in charge. It was about three o'clock when we arrived at the little station of Elmersdale. From there, a five-mile drive brought us to a small gray stone building in the midst of the rugged moors. A lonely place, I observed with a shiver. Ha oh, have I been pronouncing it Havering or Havering? Havering. Great. Havering nodded. <laughs> I think. <laughs> I shall try to get rid of it. I could never live here again. We unlatched the gate and were walking up the narrow path to the oak door when a familiar figure emerged and came to meet us. Jap! I ejaculated. <laughs> really excited to see Jap. Jap's like, isn't that like the detective at Scotland Scot Yard that like, Scotland Yard Inspector. isn't he kind of like always on Poirot's back kind about of, yeah. like, 
everything, even though he knows that Poirot is way smarter than him. Yeah, a little bit. But he's also probably very excited to see a real inspector, yeah. um, so he doesn't have to carry all the weight. So he doesn't have to of carry all Poirot. the weight. Or but so he also someone... maybe he just needed to ejaculate. Maybe he just needed to ejaculate. You know, it's he been a long day. A lot. He eja- I mean, Hastings is all Mike about wants a story. He has to least. ejaculate at least once a story. I mean, you, you do have to clear the head. I remember uh, if you saw um, something about Mary. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I am uh, quoting a Farley Brothers movie in our classy-ass podcast. But, you know, sometimes you gotta gotta clear the pipes so your head works better. So you gotta ejaculate. (laughs) I think Ken has quit the podcast. Oh, no. Ken has quit the podcast. But come on. This this has been the tenth and final episode. (laughs) Of Campfire Classics. <laughs> it started with an ejaculation and it ended it with ended one. It ended with one. Well, you gotta go it out usually, with a bang. Usually, hey! uh, <laughs> see, I was going to go with, it usually ends with an ejaculation. <laughs> Jap! I exclaimed. <laughs> no, he ejaculated. The Scotland Yard inspector grinned at me in a friendly fashion before addressing my companion. Mr. Havering, I think. I've been sent down from London to take charge of this case, and I'd like a word with you, if I may, sir. My wife. I've seen your good lady, sir, and the housekeeper. I won't keep you a moment, but I'm anxious to get back to the village now that I've seen all there is to see here. I know nothing as yet as to what exactly, said Jap smoothly. But there are just one or two little points I'd like your opinion about all the same. Captain Hastings here, he knows me, and he'll go on up to the house and tell them you're coming. Uh, What have you done with the little man, by the way, Captain Hastings? He's ill in bed with (laughs) influenza. He called him the little man. Is he now? I am sorry to hear that. Rather the case of the... Caught without the horse. Your being here without him, isn't it? <laughs> See, Jeff's an asshole. He's kind of a dick. He's a dick. He's like, oh, he sent you? Uh... <laughs> and on his rather ill-timed jest, I went on to the house. I rang the bell as Jap had closed the door behind him. After some moments, it was opened to me by a middle-aged woman in black. Mr. Havering will be here in a moment, I explained. He has been detained by the inspector. I have come down with him from London to look into the case. Perhaps you can tell me briefly what occurred last night. Oh, come inside, sir. She closed the door behind me, and we stood in the dimly lighted hall. It was after dinner last night, sir, that the man came. He asked to see Mr. Pace, sir, and seeing that he spoke the same way, I thought it was an American gentleman friend of Mr. Pace's, and I showed him into the gun room, and then went to tell Mr. Pace. Don't show people into the gun room well, to wait. It's the hunting lodge. The gun room is like the biggest room in the lodge. Well, I, don't send a stranger in to like wait with all the guns. I, well, I mean, it seems. I don't know. Continue. I, In I'm retrospect. sure there's a point. I'm sure there's a, I'm sure there's a very good good exclamation. 
Um, he wouldn't give me any name, which of course was a bit odd, now I come to think of it. I told Mr. Pace, and he seemed puzzled-like, but he said to the mistress, Excuse me, Zoe, while I just see to this what this fellow wants. He went off to the gun-room, and I went back to the kitchen, but after a while I heard loud voices as if they were quarrelling, and I came out into the hall. At the same time, the mistress, she comes out too, and just then there was a shot and then a dreadful silence. We both ran into the gun-room door, but it was locked and we had to go round to the window. It was open, and there inside was Mr. Pace, all shot and bleeding. All shot and bleeding! (laughs) (laughs) What became of the man? He must have got away through the window, sir, before we got to it. And then, Mrs. Havering sent me to fetch the police. Five miles to walk it was. They came back with me, and the constable, he stayed all night, and this morning the police gentleman from London arrived. What was this man like who called to see Mr. Pace? The housekeeper reflected. He had... A black beard, sir, and was about middle-aged, and had on a light overcoat. Uh, Beyond the fact that he spoke like an American, I didn't notice much about him. I see. Now, I wonder if I can see Mrs. Havering? She's upstairs, sir. Shall I tell her? If you please. Uh, Tell her that... Mr. Havering is outside with Inspector Jap, and that the gentleman he has brought back with him from London is anxious to speak to her as soon as possible. Very good, sir. I was in a fever of impatience to get at all the facts. Jap had two or three hours start on me, and his anxiety to be gone made me keen to be close at his heels. (laughs) Mrs. Havering did not keep me waiting long. In a few minutes, I heard a light step descending the stairs and looked up to see a very handsome young woman coming towards me. She wore a flame-colored jumper that set off the slender boyishness of her figure. Hastings and his ladies. Hastings and his ladies. (laughs) On her dark head was a little hat of flame-colored leather. Ooh. I'm digging this outfit. It sounds like Liza Minnelli is descending the stairs right now. All right, so... Here comes Liza. Here comes Liza. Even the present tragedy could not dim the vitality of her presence. I introduced myself, and she nodded in quick comprehension. Of course, I have often heard of you and your colleague, Monsieur Poirot. You have done some wonderful things together, haven't you? It was very clever of my husband to get you so promptly. Now, will you ask me questions? That is the easiest way, isn't it, of getting to know all you want to about this dreadful affair? Thank you, Mrs. Havering. Now, what time was it that this man arrived? Oh, it must have been just before nine o'clock. We had finished dinner and were sitting over our coffee and cigarettes. (laughs) Everyone liked to smoke. Everyone liked to smoke. We tried. Your husband had already left for London? Yes, he went up by the 6.15. Did he go by car to the station, or did he walk? Our own car isn't down here. One came out from the garage in Elmersdale to fetch him in time for the train. 
Was Mr. Pace quite his usual self? Absolutely. Most normal in every way. Now, can you describe this visitor at all? I'm afraid not. I didn't see him. Mrs. Middleton showed him straight into the gun room and then came to tell my uncle. What did your uncle say? He seemed rather annoyed, but went off at once. It was about five minutes later that I heard the sound of raised voices. I ran out into the hall and almost collided with Mrs. Middleton. Then we heard the shot. The gunroom door was locked on the inside, and we had to go right round the house to the window. Of course, that took some time, and the murderer had been able to get well away. My poor uncle, her voice faltered, had been shot through the head. I saw at once that he was dead. I sent Mrs. Middleton for the police. <laughs> Wait, I was, I'm sorry, I was careful to touch nothing in the room, but leave it exactly as I found it. <laughs> so he got shot in the freaking head, and the, the maid described it as... He got All shot and bleeding. bleeding. Um, he got shot and bleeding. His head exploded. <laughs> like, His head might not have exploded. If it was a little bullet, it could have just gone in. Okay, I mean, I don't know where he shot him from. I don't know. It's just, I love the description. The, the, oh, he shot, was shot bleeding. And bleeding. He was shot in the head. Like, oh my God, that's a different picture. <laughs> a very different picture. I have a very different picture now. I nodded approval. And now, as to the weapon, well, I can make a guess at it. Captain Hastings, a pair of revolvers of my husband's were mounted upon the wall. One of them is missing. Hedda Gabler did it. <laughs> I pointed this out to the police, and they took the other one away with them. When they have extracted the bullet, I suppose they will know for certain. May I go to the gun room? Certainly. The police have finished with it, but the body has been removed. She accompanied me to the scene of the crime. At that moment, Havering entered the hall, and with a quick apology, his wife ran to him. I was left to undertake my investigations alone. I may as well confess at once that they were rather disappointing. In detective <laughs> novels, clues abound, but here I could find nothing that struck me as out of the ordinary, or except, except a large blood stain on the carpet where I judged the man had fallen. No, that's just where someone went into labor one day. <laughs> <laughs> I examined everything with painstaking care and took a couple of pictures of the room with my little camera, which I had brought with me. I also examined the ground outside the window, but it appeared to have been so heavily trampled underfoot that I judged it was useless to waste time over it. Now I had seen all that Hunter's Lodge had to show me. I must go back to Elmersdale and get in touch with Jap. Accordingly, I took leave of the Haverings and was driven off in the car that had brought us up from the station. So this is a Poirot novel without Poirot, and it's so funny. He's like, yeah, I mean, he, he interviewed two people, and they basically said the exact same thing. And he's, if he, Poirot were there, he'd already know. He would have known, like, the second he walked into the damn house. <laughs> like, just from observing, like, three things. There's a decent chance... He had already solved it before Hastings got there. I'm going to guess that is true, and that's where we're headed. Yep. That's, you know, he's sick in bed and he solved the damn crime. That's how good he is. 
I found Jap at the Matlock Arms. Nope. I found Jap <laughs> at the Matlock Arms. Matlock! Another, uh, well, that Matlock. Yeah, Matlock's a... Another detective. I wonder if... No. They would have stolen, like, that character name from this. Not from, not from this, although... Maybe. I just like to pretend everybody drew on these stories Everyone stole from Agatha Christie. I mean, yeah. First British surfer. Yeah. Dame Agatha Christie. The Beach Boys stole from Agatha Christie. I fucking knew it. <gasps> Craig, if you're listening, and you fucking better be. That's his brother. Um, <laughs> My brother, Craig. Sorry for those of you who don't know. Craig, if you're listening, and you had better be, we need to start a Beach Boys... Esque band that does Agatha Christie themed music. Oh my god. Agatha Christie 1960s surf rock. Yes. Except right. it has to be Agatha Christie 19 like 30s surf rock. Do I it. found I found Jap at the Matlock Arms and he took me forthwith to see the body. Harrington Pace was a small, spare, clean shaven man. Typically American in appearance. (laughs) Typically American. He had been shot through the back of the head, and the revolver had been discharged at close quarters. See, yeah. (laughs) Turned away for a moment, remarked Jap, and the other fellow snatched up the revolver and shot him. The one Mrs. Havering handed over to us was fully loaded, and I suppose the other one was also... Curious what darn fool things people do. Fancy keeping two loaded revolvers hanging up on your wall. Uh, Damn fool things Americans do. Well, Americans. Keeping a room full of loaded guns. Huh, like uh, PSA, don't fucking keep loaded guns hanging around your house. I mean, you know. Statistically, you are far, far more likely to be shot by your own gun than you are to shoot an intruder. Boom! Boom. What do you think of the case? I asked as we left the gruesome chamber behind us. Well, I'd got my eye on Havering to begin with. Oh, yes! Noting my exclamation of astonishment. Havering has one or two shady incidents in his past. When he was a boy at Oxford, there was some funny business about the signature on one of his father's checks. All hushed up, of course. Then he's pretty heavily in debt now, and they're the kind of debts he wouldn't like to go to his uncle about. Whereas you may be sure the uncle's will would be in his favor. Yes, I'd got my eye on him, and that's why I wanted to speak to him before I saw his wife. But their statements dovetail all right. And I've been to the station, and there's no doubt whatever that he left by the 6.15. That gets up to London about 10.30. He went straight to his club, he says, and if that's confirmed all right, why, he couldn't have been shooting his uncle at nine o'clock with a black beard. That's very true. Ah, yes. Ah, the, ah, the, the simple minds of the of the the... Basic detectives. <laughs> it's like, no, 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 no. Paul Rose sitting at home, like, being like, they figured it out yet? Yep. Really? Ah, yes, I was going to ask you what you thought about that beard. Jap winked. I think it grew pretty fast. 
grew in the five miles from Elmersdale to Hunter's Lodge. Americans that I've met are mostly clean-shaven. Yes, it's amongst Mr. Pace's American associates that we'll have to look for the murderer. I questioned the housekeeper first, then her mistress, and their stories agree all right. But I'm sorry Mrs. Havering didn't get a look at the fellow. She's a smart woman, and she might have noticed something that would set us on the track. I sat down and wrote a minute and lengthy account to Poirot. I was able to add various further items of information before I posted the letter. The bullet had been extracted and was proved to have been fired from a revolver identical with the one held by the police. Furthermore, Mr. Havering's movements on the night in question had been checked and verified, and it was proved beyond doubt that he had actually arrived in London by the train in question. And thirdly, a sensational development had occurred. A city gentleman living at Ealing on crossing Haven Green to get to the district railway station that morning had observed a brown paper parcel stuck between the railings. Opening it, he found that it contained a revolver. revolver. <laughs> In <laughs> the dining room with Mr. Yet to be named. Or Mrs. Yet to be named. Or... Well, it's in the train station. In the train station. I, mean, I yeah. used to have dining room because there is no train station in Clue, but fuck it, we're, we're making our own Clue game. The revolver. He handed the parcel over to the local police station, and before night, it was proved to be the one where we were in search of. The fellow to that given us by Mrs. Havering. One bullet had been fired from it. All this I added to my report. A wire from Poirot arrived whilst I was at breakfast the following morning. Of course, black-bearded man was not avering. Only you or Jap would have such an idea. <laughs> wire me description of housekeeper and what clothes she wore this morning. Same of Mrs. Avering. Do not waste time taking photographs of interiors. They are underexposed and not the least artistic. <laughs> Thank you for all the useless information. Can you send me <laughs> useful information? Thank you. And by the way, your assumption was stupid. Let's keep going. I, also, I trust you. Also, you're a crappy photographer. <laughs> it seems to me that Poirot's style was unnecessarily facetious. <laughs> was it though? Was it? Was it? I though? also fancied he was a shade jealous of my position on the spot with full facilities for handling the case. His request for a description of the clothes worn by the two women appeared to me to be simply ridiculous, but I complied as well as I, a mere man, was able to. At eleven, a reply wire came from Poirot. Advise Jap. Arrest housekeeper before it is too late. Uh. Dumbfounded, I took the wire to Jap. We swore soft. He swore softly under his breath. <laughs> oh, that's too bad. Uh, I wonder what he swore. Uh, yeah, I don't What's know. like the most British swear swear sequence you can think of that a like detective at this time would say. <laughs> um. Boulder Dash Giggly Woods. 
Diggly Dong. Uh, <laughs> I uh, apologize to all British people. Damnation be confounded or something. Ooh, yes, I like something that. Something like that. I like that. He's, Oblige them be blown. <laughs> <laughs> He's the goods, Monsieur Poirot. If he says so, there's something in it, and I hardly noticed the woman. I don't know that I can go so far as arresting her, but I'll have her watched. We'll go up right away and take another look at her. Yeah, I mean, she was all in black. But it was too late. <gasps> She gone. Mrs. Middleton, that quiet middle-aged woman who had appeared so normal and respectable, had vanished into thin air. Her box had been left behind. It contained only ordinary wearing apparel. There was no clue in it to her identity or as to her whereabouts. From Mrs. Havering, we elicited all the facts we could. I engaged her about three weeks ago when Mrs. Emery, our former housekeeper, left. She came to me from Mrs. Selborne's agency in Mount Street, a very well-known place. I get all my servants from there. They sent several women to see me, but this Mrs. Middleton seemed much the nicest and had splendid references. I engaged her on the spot and notified the agency of the fact. I can't believe that there was anything wrong with her. She was such a nice, quiet woman. The thing was certainly a mystery. Whilst it was clear that the woman herself could not have committed the crime, since at the moment the shot was fired, Mrs. Havering was with her in the hall, nevertheless, she must have some connection with the murderer, or why should she suddenly take to her heels and bolt? I wired the latest development to Poirot and suggested returning to London and making inquiries at Selborne's agency. Poirot's reply was prompt. No. Useless to inquire at agency. They will never have heard of her. Find out what vehicle took her up to Hunter's Lodge when she first arrived there. Though mystified, I was obedient. The means of transport in Elmersdale were limited. The local garage had two battered Ford cars, and there were two station flies. None of these had been requested on the date in question. Questioned, Mrs. Havering explained that she had given the woman the money for her fare down to Derbyshire, and sufficient to hire a car or fly to take her up to Hunter's Lodge. There was usually one of the Fords at the station on the chance of it being required. Taking into consideration the further fact that nobody at the station had noticed the arrival of the stranger, of a stranger, black-bearded or otherwise, on the fatal evening, everything seemed to point to the conclusion that the murderer had come to the spot in a car which had been waiting near at hand to aid his escape, and that the same car had brought the mysterious housekeeper to her new post. I may mention that inquiries at the agency in London bore out Poirot's prognostication. (laughs) No such woman (laughs) as Mrs. Middleton had ever been on their books. I love that he still checked. Like, he's like... Gonna check yeah, anyway. Yeah, but like that was my idea, Poirot, and like you're in bed sick. I'm gonna do what I want. Ah, <laughs> oh, shit. I'm just gonna <laughs> double check. Just I'm just 
I'm just making sure that this flu hasn't made you sort of lose... Making sure. Yeah. Yeah. They had received the Honorable Mrs. Havering's application for a housekeeper and had sent her various applicants for the post. When she sent them the engagement fee, she omitted to mention which woman she had selected. Somewhat crestfallen, I returned to London. I found Poirot established in an armchair by the fire in a garish silk dressing gown. <laughs> he greeted me with much affection. Mon ami Hastings, but how glad I am to see you. Veritably, I have for you a great affection. And you have enjoyed yourself? You have run to and fro with the good Jap? You have interrogated and investigated to your heart's content? Poirot! I cried. The thing's a dark mystery! It will never be solved! It is true that we are not likely to cover ourselves with glory over it. No, indeed, it's a hard nut to crack. Oh, as far as that goes, I am very good at cracking the nuts. <laughs> a veritable squirrel. The small man is good at cracking the nuts. <laughs> He's a nutcracker. Nutcracker. It is not that which embarrasses me. I know well enough who killed Mr. Arrington Pace. You know? How did you find out? Your illuminating answers to my wires supplied me with the truth. See here, Hastings. Let us examine the facts methodically and in order. Mr. Arrington Pace is a man with a considerable fortune, which at his death will doubtless pass to his nephew. Point number one. His nephew is known to be desperately hard up. Point number two. His nephew is also known to be shall we say, a man of rather loose moral fiber. Point number three. But Roger Havering is proved to have journeyed straight up to London. Precisement. And <laughs> therefore, as Mr. Havering left Elmersdale at 6.15, and since Mr. Pace cannot have been killed before he left, or the doctor would have spotted the time of the crime as being given wrongly when he examined the body, we conclude quite rightly that Mr. Avering did not shoot his uncle. Doesn't mean he wasn't but involved. there is a Mrs. Avering, Hastings. Impossible. Oh, they were both The housekeeper was with her when the shot was fired. Ah, yes, the housekeeper. But she disappeared. <laughs> yeah. She will be found. I think not. There is something peculiarly elusive about that housekeeper. Don't you think so, Hastings? It struck me at once. She played her part, I suppose, and then got out in the nick of time. And what was her part? Well, presumably, to admit her confederate, the black-bearded man. Oh no, that was not her part. Her part was what you have just mentioned to provide an alibi for Mrs. Avering at the moment the shot was fired. Mm -hmm. And no one will ever find her, mon ami, because she does not exist. exist. There is no such person as your so great Shakespeare says. <laughs> it was Dickens, 
I murmured. I <laughs> smile. Hey, it's the one time he gets to like be like, no, Poirot, no, it was Dickens. Come on. <laughs> Respect the authors. But what do you mean, Poirot? I mean that Zoe Avering was an actress before her marriage. She's Always, got a thing about actresses. She, act, uh, we've read a few short stories where it's, the actress is always doing something sketchy. I mean that Avering was an actress before her marriage, that you and Jap only saw the housekeeper in a dark hall, in a dim, uh, a dim <laughs> middle-aged figure in black with a faint subdued voice. And finally, that neither you nor Jap nor the local police whom the housekeeper fetched ever saw Mrs. Middleton and her mistress at one and the same time. It was child's play for that clever and daring woman. On the pretext of summoning her mistress, she runs upstairs, slips into a bright jumper and a hat with black curls attached, which she jams down over the gray transformation. (laughs) A few deft touches and the makeup is removed, a slight dusting of rouge, and the brilliant Zoe Avering comes down with her clear ringing voice. Nobody looks particularly at the housekeeper. Why should they? There is nothing to connect her with the crime. She, too, has an alibi. But the revolver that was found at Ealing, Mrs. Havering could not have placed it there. No, that was Roger Havering's job. But it was a mistake on their part. It put me on the right track. A man who has committed murder with a revolver, which he found on the spot, would fling it away at once. He would not carry it up to London with him. No, the motive was clear. The criminals wished to focus the interest of the police on a spot far removed from Derbyshire. They were anxious to get the police away as soon as possible from the vicinity of Hunter's Lodge. Of course, the revolver found at Ealing was not the one with which Mr. Pace was shot. Roger Avering discharged one shot from it brought it up to London, went straight to his club and established his alibi, then went quickly out to Ealing by the district, a matter of about 20 minutes only, placed the parcel where it was found, and so back to town. That charming creature, his wife, quietly shoots Mr. Pace after dinner. You remember he was shot from behind. Another significant point that reloads the revolver, puts it back in its place, and then starts off with your desperate little comedy. (laughs) It's incredible, (laughs) I murmured, fascinated. And yet, and yet it is true. Bien sûr, my friend, it is true. But to bring that precious pair to justice, that is another matter. Well, Jap must do what he can. I have written him fully, but I very much fear, Hastings, that we shall be obliged to leave them to fate, or le bon Dieu, whichever you prefer. What's le bon Dieu? Uh, the, 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 the good Lord. The gods, okay. The good Lord. The good Lord. Le bon Dieu, the, 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 good, the good God, the God. good Lord. Uh, the wicked flourish like a gree bay tree, I reminded him. But at a price, Hastings, 
always at a price. Crémois. Poirot's forebodings were confirmed. Jap, though convinced of the truth of his theory, was unable to get together the, nece- the necessary evidence to ensure conviction. Ah. Mr. Pace's huge fortune passed into the hands of his murderers. Uh, uh. Nevertheless, Nemesis did overtake them, and when I read in the paper that the Honorable Roger and Mrs. Havering were amongst those killed in the crashing of the airmail to Paris, I knew that justice was satisfied. Oh, shit! The end. Oh, damn! (laughs) Oh, my God! Wow. (laughs) Well... God damn it, I love these stories. They're so good. (laughs) You're just like, what? You knew, I mean, we knew he'd figured it out. Yeah. Like, he's sitting at home, like, letting Hastings and Jap have their fun. They're just doing the footwork. They're just... He just let them do all the heavy lifting. That's all. They're the sergeants, and he's the... He's head honcho. Yeah. It's so Uh... good. Well, that was episode 10. That was episode 10. That was another Agatha Christie. Agatha, surfer dude Hey, thanks for joining us. Yeah. Much appreciated. Hope you enjoyed that. We, we um, love it. If you enjoyed that and you want to hear more stories like that, go ahead and reach out to us. Uh, you can let us know what you want to hear either by emailing 5050artsproduction at gmail.com or... On our website, new website. Uh, we've got our new website is up. It's campfireclassicspodcast.com. And there are a couple of places on it where you can send us a message. Uh, you can let us know what stories or authors you would like to hear more of. Yeah, we would love for you to reach out and just suggest any kind of author that you want to hear or you used to read or you've always wanted to read. But make sure they're in public domain so we don't get sued. Um. All right. I think you know that's what? it. I feel good about that. That's I don't feel I need 10. to talk too much. No, I Poirot just kicks ass, you know. Uh, thanks for hanging out with us. Yeah. Uh, this has been Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. Ejaculation. <laughs> He's never coming back, y'all. <laughs>